Well, good morning, everybody. Going to get us started, and I'm going to pray before I start. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and we'll jump right into our study of Joel. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace. Lord, I I thank you for the frivolous entertainments that you give us just as part of your grace to the world. Thank you, Lord, that we live in a country where we can have amusements, Lord, because there are places where people are just trying to struggle to survive. So I thank you for the privileges and the blessings you've given us as a country. Lord, I thank you for your continued sustaining hand, Lord, even as our country increasingly ignores you, our fellow citizens despise you and they despise what you stand for, and yet, Lord, you still called us to love them, to live alongside them, and to pray for our leaders even when they exasperate us. Lord, I say these things in light of the memory yesterday of the horrific events 20 years ago of September 11th and the attack on America. Lord, in our hearts, we still remember what that was like. The deaths and destruction that occurred that day were horrific, but Lord, because of the after effects of that, countless others died. And many are still suffering because of the dominoes that fell on that day. So Lord, I pray for our our country. Give us grace. I pray for our servicemen and women stationed around the world. I pray for those who have served who are still dealing with the horrific trauma of what they've experienced over the last 20 years of fighting battles uh, around the world because they're defending our freedom. So Lord, pray for all those things, and I also pray for us, Lord, as we're here gathered together. I thank you, Lord, for the chance to worship. We we take so much for granted because you've blessed us with so much, but Lord, thank you for the privilege we have of hearing Pastor Steve in the morning and, and gathering together to pray for one another in Sunday school, and, and now we thank you for another opportunity to open your word. I pray that you give me wisdom and clarity so that I can accurately handle the word of truth. I pray, Lord, each one of us, including me, would have ears to hear so that we could take the lessons of application from the book of Joel that you intend for us and apply them first to our own hearts. Lord, we love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue on, we are in the midst of multi-lesson sections of chapter 2 of the book of Joel. And really, we are zeroed in, although we're not exactly completely there, we're dealing with the ultimate theme of the book, which is the day of the Lord that is coming. In chapter 1, verse 15, the prophet said, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And he really is framing everything in his prophetic, poetic book, around the idea that God is coming to judge, you better be ready. Now for the people that he is originally writing to, as we've covered in great detail in chapter 1, the most immediate judgment was that their economy and their land was completely devastated by swarm after swarm of locusts. And as we've turned into chapter 2 and began opening up the word week after week, we're seeing again a warning that the day of the Lord is near... But now it's not just locusts. We're starting to see that it's going to be an actual human army that's going to do more damage and more destruction than anything the locusts could have ever done. 
Now, as we are going through it, there are hard things to understand. The difficulties of interpretation I've already alluded to, I'll allude to them yet again this morning. But the ultimate point of the section that we're studying now, the outcome, the so what, the why is this in the scripture, as Pastor Steve was even talking about this morning, is found for us in verses that we're not covering yet, but it's in chapter 2, verse 12, and beginning of verse 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. That's ultimately the focus of the entire book. It's all about repentance, of turning away from a life of ignoring God and sinning against God and coming to Him as a true child. At this time, on that side of the cross, it was about being one of the covenant people of God and keeping that covenant. For us on this side of the cross, the message of repentance is still just as urgent, but it's a repentance and turning to Christ. So as I outline this material, and today we'll continue on our second point, but I, I just have been presenting it as evidence in the case for repentance. Because we can look ahead at verse 12 and see what he's calling them to. He's explaining in these verses why he's calling them to that. Why must they repent? So evidence in the case for repentance, the first was that familiar statement that I've been repeating week after week, the day of the Lord is approaching, the day of the Lord is approaching. Verse 1 of chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. And again, this is just a warning to God's chosen people of that time that you've turned your back on God and judgment is on the way. The day of the Lord is coming, it's not hypothetical, it's not it may come, it is coming Sound the alarm. Sound it from in front of the temple where the symbolic glory of God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. Sound the alarm. Warn people. Everyone should be afraid because God is coming in judgment. And the nature of that judgment we began to discuss last week, but it's the second piece of evidence in the case for repentance, the army of the Lord is coming. The army of the Lord is coming. Now again, as we go through chapter 2, as I've mentioned the last two weeks when I've taught, some, when looking at this text, come to a conclusion that it means one thing. Others come to a different conclusion that it means something else. Everyone agrees it's all about repentance. It's just what is the image that's drawing people to repentance? And as I've indicated to you, some, and you'll see why today, as we get further into the language, say that really chapter 2 is a restatement of chapter 1. The locusts have come, they've destroyed the land. Chapter 2 is just a restatement of the same thing with a few different emphasis. And they say it's the same event. Others say, no, 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 no. He's using the imagery of chapter 1, which is fresh on their minds, to paint a picture of what it will be like when the army of God comes to attack. And as I mentioned to you last week, I think that's probably more where I lean, though I've gone back and forth. And so as I set it up last week from a thinking standpoint, as we go through the material, we need to remember what just happened, which was the locust plague that wiped out everything. We need to remember what will soon happen, which is a near fulfillment of the day 
of the day of destruction of an army coming. And then we need to remember that this is ultimately pointing to the events of the book of Revelation of what will ultimately happen at the end of time. So in essence, we've got, well, we run out of feet. One foot in the far past, one foot in the near future, and then we'll put a hand in the distant future. But as we began to go through it last week, we, we covered verses 2 and 3. But we began to see the picture of a coming army that would invade the land of Israel. Specifically, the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So as there is a great and mighty people, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Again, the imagery of darkness and gloom and doom is just a picture of God's judgment. It might call to mind one of the plagues in Egypt when there was darkness. Or it might call to mind when the Israelites gathered at the mountain in front of Moses and Moses went up by themselves and there was thunder and darkness and clouds. Either way, what he's saying is in the midst of the darkness at some point, he's just using poetic imagery, at some point, just like you would look out and see the sun coming over a mountain and things start to light up, as the nation of Judah looks around, what they see, like the dawn coming over a mountain, is they see there's army everywhere. A great and mighty people is spread out in front of them as far as the eye can see. And he's borrowing similar language from the first chapter. The locust plague was something unprecedented. There's never been anything like it. Tell it to your sons and the sons' sons. It's a generational thing, once in a lifetime. Same thing in verse 2. This army coming in and the destruction that will happen is unprecedented. Never anything like it. So as the locust plague was a once in a lifetime manifestation of God's hand of discipline, so will this army be... And as I mentioned last week, if you look ahead to verse 20 of chapter 2, you see God saying, but I'll remove the northern army. So if we place this event that was still future at the time of Joel, it could very well have been when the Assyrian army swept in from the north and devastated the people and wiped out everything. But either way, he's referencing the fact of you just had a once in a lifetime attack of locusts, you're about to have a once in a lifetime attack by a foreign army if you don't repent. And he paints a picture and everything in this picture is building. It's a picture intended to terrify the people. And every layer is just building dangerous imagery upon dangerous imagery. Things that are terrifying. Verse 3. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. He's painting as broad a contrast as he can, that at some point, even though the locusts have wiped out everything, stuff will grow again. The land will become the land of milk and honey again. And he's taken imagery, the Garden of Eden, in the mind of a Jewish person that understood the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden would be the most beautiful, perfect place you could see. It's perfection, it's beauty. And what he's saying is, as you're looking out at this army that's spread out as far as the eye can see, in front of the army, complete beauty 
until they come. Then it's a fire. Then it's a devastation. So if you're stepping back and look, you can see beautiful everything. But this army comes and they're like a flame in front. It's like a flame behind. It's a scorched earth attack. If you've ever been in an area where they have a lot of fires, you you can understand the imagery. Fire is unbelievably destructive. And he's saying, like that, that's what this army's going to bring. And you can't get away from it. I remember many times flying, when I was flying for, I was living in the L.A. area in seminary, but I would fly to Northern California for work, and I can remember flying back, if you've lived in California, probably some of you have seen it, and seeing the mountains on fire at night. And they just burn and they burn and they burn and they burn until there's nothing left to burn. The imagery he's picturing is this. This is a relentless army that's going to destroy until there is nothing left to destroy. And now we come to new material. Everything I've said so far is really just a summary of what I've taught. But again, remember... They have in their mind what just occurred with the locust. Even with the devastation, they can remember what the land looked like before and after, and some of the imagery is borrowing from that. In fact, what we're about to see as we begin in verse 4 is we're going to keep seeing the word like. Their appearance is like, and like this, and like that. And again, what he's doing is he's describing something real, but he's doing it with poetic, figurative language because he wants to create in the people's heart an image that should make them tremble, it should make them terrified because ultimately he wants them to repent and turn to God. He wants them to realize what's coming. God has shown it to him. He's trying to show it to the people as best he can. And what he's going to keep doing is he's going to be referencing the imagery and the sounds and that that's very real in their mind of what the locusts had just done. And he's going to use that imagery continually to point out what's coming if they don't repent. So let's try and start walking through this. I'm just going to start walking through verses and I'm going to get through most of them this morning. But remember, this is a building of a picture of terror. Verse 4. And again, he's talking about this consuming, destructive, mighty people coming their way. That the alarm is being sounded about. Verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. Again, he is looking at a human army, I believe, but he is using what exactly had occurred with the locust. So he's blending these two events. The historical reality of what just occurred is being used to figuratively picture what will actually occur in the future with people. Now, as I started studying this, I learned some interesting things. It says their appearance is like the appearance of horses. He is talking about locusts, but he's using them to represent the people that are going to come. 
the actual people. But I have to tell you, when I see a locust, it doesn't remind me of a horse. I actually, yesterday, I spent some time looking at pictures of locusts. But here's the interesting thing. Throughout history, people have made that connection based on the shape of the head of a locust. Again, I don't see it, but that's just me. Apparently, the Italian word for locust, if you break it down, it literally means little horse. And if you look at the German word for locust, I'm told by the scholars, because I don't know German and I also don't know Italian, but I'm told it means hay horses. So throughout history, there's been this connection between the appearance. But what we also know is at the time of the writing of Joel, in this era of history, an army was pictured and its strength was measured by the horse's the literal horsepower brought to bear. So he says their appearance is like the appearance of horses. That would be an imagery of a powerful army. And like war horses, so they run. In other words, you think of some movie you've seen with a battle scene with a cavalry or horses coming and charging at full tilt. That's what he's picturing here. And again, he's conveying what they've just heard and experienced with the locust to make it all the more real so that it will come to life. Verse 5, with the noise as of chariots. Again, he's tying together this war machine coming their way. They leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. When he says, with the noise as of chariots, probably has in mind just what they had heard, the deafening roar, the annoying constant hum of the locust swarms. And he's telling them at some point, something like that is going to happen with literal horses and literal chariots. In fact, in that day and age, the number of horses and chariots you had would be an indication of how powerful was your army. You go all the, way, all the way back to Egypt, relatively familiar imagery for us, but of Exodus 14:23, when Pharaoh decided, oops, I made a mistake letting the people go. Then the Egyptians took up their pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. In other words, that's a powerful army. In Israel, that was a measure of power. Solomon... Kings were warned not to do this, but Solomon accumulated horses. 1 Kings 4.26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. In other words, that's the symbol of power and of might coming your way. In fact, horses and chariots were often pictures in the Old Testament of God's judgment through invading armies. So, for example, in Nahum... Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charges, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. So what Joel is doing is using imagery 
of what just occurred with the locusts and putting it in the context that the people would understand an army is coming that will unleash catastrophe. Like horses, like war horses, the sound of chariots. And then he begins to paint a picture of how relentless and unstoppable this army will be. Verse 5, with the noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Again, he's just picturing an irresistible, indestructible force that will wipe out everything. One of the things with the locusts was once they came in, they came across everything. And he's picturing here an army that isn't limited by the natural defenses of a mountain. If you go to Israel, like many places in the world, there's mountains everywhere. And mountains provide a measure of protection for you so that the army has to come through the valley. You see how different things were set up throughout history and armies have done that. They know we're safe on the mountain. What the writer is pointing to is the fact that mountains are no barrier to this army. The natural protection that Jerusalem and Judah might have against some armies is going to be gone for this army because God's going to equip them to overcome any obstacle. Again, he's got this imagery and this sound of flame consuming dead grass. I think every kid likes to look at a fire and if it's burning and you throw stuff in and you hear it crackle and you hear it consume, boom, boom, boom. That's fun when you're a kid throwing it in a controlled fire, but when you see it burning on the hillside and wiping out everything, it's terrifying. And again, these people are arrayed for battle. They're not coming to pay a visit. They're not coming to say hello. They're coming to kill and destroy. It's loud. It's thundering. It's happening quickly. It's happening from every direction. And it's terrifying. Verse 6. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. You can almost imagine, and again, this is prophetic. This is something that hasn't happened yet, but he's saying it's going to happen. He's picturing the people standing in the city of Jerusalem. They've heard the alarm, and they look, and it's overwhelming. The, the color's drained out of them. They've turned into ghosts. They're in anguish because they understand what's about to happen. They've heard the alarm, they look out and they see an army descending on them with the swiftness, with the numbers of the locust plague that had just wiped them out. And it's going to be even worse. They've got nowhere to run, they've got nowhere to hide and this army is truly terrifying. Verse 7. Again, Wetting the imagery of what they've just experienced with what they will experience if they don't repent. Verse 7, they run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. 
They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Again, he's reminding them of what just occurred with the locust. The thing with the locusts is they went everywhere they wanted to and there was nothing you could do to stop them. And in the imagery of chapter 1, it was wave after wave. It just kept coming. And he's borrowing that imagery to point out the relentlessness of this army. They'll be mighty men. They'll be climbing over the walls. Not only is the mountain no defense of protection, the walls of Jerusalem won't be protection either. And he's picturing an orderly army in a sense, imagery, and the way even other cultures talked about locust plagues, they would talk of them like an army because it was that type of relentless march. And that's what he's borrowing from. They march in line. They don't deviate from their paths. They don't crowd each other. In other words, every soldier knows what he's going to do and nothing's going to deter that soldier from carrying out his portion of the overall task and yet there's countless of them. Countless numbers. They march everyone where he's supposed to go. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. In other words... Again, they've come over the mountain. They've come over the wall. Whatever defensive fortifications might be, if this army ever comes, if the people don't repent, the soldiers are going to bust through the defenses and they're not going to be high-fiving each other. They're still going to be on task. They don't break ranks. They keep going, verse 9. And the imagery here in verse 9 is really very powerful. Because again, all of this is going back to drawing on what just happened with the locusts. The locusts were everywhere. They overwhelmed everything. You couldn't stop them. They got into everything. This army's going to do the same thing. Just like the locusts. They, they just keep going. They don't get tired. This army won't get tired. They'll run and run and run. There won't be a rest break. They'll cover ground with terrifying speed. Nothing will stop them. Just like the locusts came up and over everything and everywhere, this army is going to do the same thing. I mentioned, and I meant to mention this reference just so it's not me saying these things, I mentioned that sometimes locusts are, are, are compared to like an army. But for example, in Proverbs thirty twenty seven, the locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. Now, he's not saying literally they're in an army, but that's how they do. They, they go out that way. And so all this is coming together. And it's relentless. Verse 9, they rush on the city. Again, it's this overwhelming sense of dread because on the one hand, you just heard the alarm and you looked and you saw all the hillsides are covered and it'd be one thing if they just sat there. And that did happen at different times in Israel's history. The army sat out there. And then God eventually took care of them. In this case, no. You looked out and you saw the army and the army didn't stop. And it still hasn't stopped. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. And that's just an indication of they came up over the wall, but now they've got free reign. There's nothing stopping them. It's a complete overwhelming of all defensive fortifications. It is the enemy inside the gate. Again, borrowing imagery from the locusts, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. It just means nothing's off limits 
to this army. It will go wherever it is ordered to go. It's a tidal wave, as it were, that can't be stopped. There's no barrier anywhere. Again, in my mind, and I'm not, we're different generations here, but I go back and it's interesting how you see these things and Hollywood sometimes paints good pictures of war stuff. The Lord of the Rings battles where all the armies of Sauron are warm and all the orcs and everything, they're coming through and they're inside the walls and the people are terrified. That's sort of the imagery here. But you don't have to go to Hollywood because in real life, if you go back to, for example, World War II and what the armies of Hitler did in the early days of overwhelming border after border of country after country. So let's regroup a little bit because we've sort of set the picture. The people that are getting this letter have already lost everything. They experienced something much worse than 9-11. Their economy's already gone. They don't have food. They can't even worship God, if you recall, from the first chapter because they don't have the ability to sacrifice. They are as helpless as helpless can be. And Joel comes in with a word of encouragement and says, it's going to be worse, much worse. When that northern army comes, it's going to be devastating. And what makes it so difficult is that this isn't just a random army. We're not there yet. We'll be there next week. But verse 11, and I've read it already. The Lord utters his voice before his army. It's going to be a pagan nation that God enlists to do judgment. But what makes this army unbeatable, what makes this army so terrifying is that God is with them And God's bringing them. And if you think you're one of God's people, it's incomprehensible. Wait, I'm God's people. I'm one of his chosen ones. And you're saying God's bringing an army against me? And that's exactly what Joel's saying. Now as we get to verse 10, this is where we begin to see the first tangible glimpses of that future ultimate day of judgment, which is best described by events in the book of Revelation. So Joel is saying that when this northern army comes if it comes in the near future which is possible if you don't repent it's going to be a foreshadowing a little bit of a taste 
of what is going to be on the ultimate day of the Lord when God pours out judgment on all of his enemies. Verse 10 says this, Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. He's talking about nothing less than cataclysmic, cosmic devastation if people don't repent. Again, this human army that will come, there's a sense in which the rumbling and everything will be there, but he's talking about events that are ultimately going to be fulfilled in that distant future. Again, this is all the Lord's doing. Verse 11, the Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. But one day all that will literally happen at an even greater judgment. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3. And these are throughout Scripture. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now Peter uses it just for a call to holiness. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Again, now Joel is stepping in to the part of his message that extends beyond his original hearers and really ties into the warning to people like us where we live now. The day of the Lord is near, it is coming. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12. Again, looking at the language of Joel, of this cosmic, of these things happening in the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the heavens. It's the type of thing that Revelation talks about. Chapter 6, verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Again, we're not there yet, but look at verse 11. We'll take it apart more next week. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? 
And here's the point, of course, apart from repentance and apart from Christ, no one. So Joel is building us to a crescendo of terror. And again, we can very easily look back and say, well, this happened thousands of years ago, which it did. And this was a warning to a people that have long since left the earth, which it was. But we have to remember that it's still in the Word of God and it applies to us today. Perhaps not in a literal northern army. The Canadians aren't much of a threat coming down on us. The warning to us is still the same. We must repent because the day of the Lord is near. I know we all share great concern for our country. And I don't minimize that. It's real. And it's legitimate. And as citizens of the United States, if it didn't concern us what we see with our country, well, then you just got your eyes closed and you're blind. But there's a reason that I don't get as frustrated as I used to about it because I'm not scared of what the end of the day I'm not scared of what's going to happen to America I'm scared of all the people that I know that are facing the wrath of God that's the most important thing for us is to warn people to sound the alarm that God is sending judgment on sinners and it's real and it's coming and it'll be worse than anything you could ever imagine. You take 9-11, you take Afghanistan, you go back and watch World War II, you go back and watch what Mao did to China in the Cultural Revolution. You go back and watch what Stalin did to his own people. You pick any moment in human history and it pales in comparison to people trying to hide from the wrath of God. Because there's no escape apart from Christ. So next week we're going to cover our final point and set ourselves up but remember why any of this matters. Because in this generation, it's the church that sounds the alarm. Not the alarm about all that's going wrong in society. I can see that on TV. It's sounding the alarm that the wrath of God is coming and no one can escape it. No one can endure it. And I'm really excited for the verses that come because there is hope. And I'm looking forward to get to the hope. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we are in many ways from a human perspective a motley crew of sinners. Lord, each one of us knows our weakness and our wickedness and our stumbles. Lord, we're 
in our best moments would like to picture ourselves as part of a holy army and then we look in the mirror and we see ourselves bandaged up and crippled, stumbling to the finish line. But I thank you, Lord, that we're stumbling and bandaged up together in Christ. And Lord, though we are not an impressive collection of people here at Lakeside in any earthly sense, we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are your children. We are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, there's still room in your family for lost sinners. Pray that you will help us to keep our focus on the most important things. Lord, we do pray for our country and we pray for our leaders. We'll pray that they will repent. But Lord, it goes beyond just our citizenship here on earth because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And your wrath will pour out and won't respect any national borders but will fall on all sinners. Lord, help us sound the alarm. We know only you can sovereignly regenerate a heart. Only you can save. And yet, Lord, the means you've given for salvation is your word preached by your people. Desperate sinners saved by grace pointing other desperate sinners to the cross. Lord, help us be about your business. We pray, Lord, that as we continue through this book, that we will be encouraged. But Lord, help us have a holy fear, not for our own sake, but for the sake of all those who are in danger of feeling your wrath. Give us love and compassion for the lost. Lord, we love you. We pray that this week, you'll help us be holy as you are holy. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.